from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, WMBR in Cambridge, and biketalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, everybody. Hey, Nick. Hey, Taylor. Nick. Hey, Seamus. Hi. We got Jenny. Hey, Jenny. Jenny Chang here today. I love listening to you guys. It's kind of it me feel a little weird being on, but it's, it's kind of fun. <laughs> Excited. If you can't beat us, join us. Yeah. <laughs> Jenny is the director of communications for Laura Friedman, assembly member. Yep, yep. Who was who was at the die-in today? Yeah, that was super exciting. Seamus and I are there with um, assembly member Laura Friedman out here in California. She covers the Burbank, Glendale, and Sherman Oaks, um, the, <laughs> Studio City area. Much of the San Fernando Valley. Um, right. But it was a it was a packed event. Like the steps were covered from end to end. Um, yeah, it's City Hall, yeah. Yeah, you know, in, in 2015, I think it was Mayor Garcetti who um, started Vision Zero in Los Angeles, which was the goal of bringing, you know, traffic violence and roadway deaths to zero by 2025. And here we are eight years later in 2023, and the numbers yeah. aren't going down. There was a report in the Los Angeles Times just this week that 2022 was the most deadly year on record uh, for the city of Los Angeles when it comes to traffic violence. 312 people were killed walking or biking in Los Angeles City in 2022. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more people died when vehicle miles traveled went down during the pandemic. More people were killed by cars. Deaths went up like 30% yeah. because people were driving faster. And apparently faster, LA right? is like almost 10% of California's traffic accidents. Wow. Well, so today, Damien Kevitt of uh, Safe Streets Are for Everyone um, hosted a protest and die-in on the steps of Los Angeles City Hall. And there were a couple hundred people there, I think. Uh, But a lot of people spoke. And then we had 312 seconds of silence where all the protesters lay on on the steps of City Hall dead as a representation of all the people that have lost their lives on our streets. It was packed. It was, yeah. Streets are for everyone, streets for all, Bike LA. It was a huge coalition. Livable Communities Initiative was there. Yeah, I don't think Uh, we can give a shout out to all the groups. There were so many participating organizations, but definitely a lot of enthusiasm and it's a growing movement. I mean, it's good. You know, you talk about Vision Zero. I feel like this is long overdue. I mean, it's great that we had Vision Zero. (laughs) Like, where's it going to go in the next few years? Um, Right. I mean, this particular episode is really cool in that, you know, I know we're in L.A. and maybe it doesn't seem as obviously relevant to your local audience. You're, you're based in Massachusetts, right? Well, one of our stations, Valley Free Radio, actually two stations, yeah. Valley Free Radio and WMBR in Cambridge. So Cambridge and Florence. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I just love the conversation between the West and East Coast and they were kind of got these parallel efforts going and holding a mirror up to each other, especially California being so progressive, you know, whether it's transportation or gay rights or immigration, you know, environmental laws, there's a lot happening out here and can really influence the national conversation. It's so, so, yeah, Yeah. so great that you all are making the space. Well, thank you, Nick. What's what's on the show today? Speaking of Massachusetts, we have Galen Mook, who's the executive director of the Massachusetts Bike Coalition, and he's talking to someone from CalBike, the California Bicycle Coalition, about e-bike rebates, and a council member for Washington, D.C.'s second ward who's introducing legislation to have e-bike rebates there. Um, And then I get to interview my soon-to-be former boss, breaking news, soon-to-be former boss. I'm leaving Assemblymember Friedman's office, but it was really cool. I got to talk to her about the Omnibike bill that was signed last year changing the the rules so that cars now have to give more than three feet they actually have to change lanes just like they do when passing other cars um we also got to talk about uh her her parking minimums bill and talking about the the slashing for the active transportation programs she's really a leader in the space and here's that interview we are here today with Assemblymember Laura Friedman, an absolute legend in the active transportation space. Bikes, trains, buses. I should start by saying that I've worked for the Assemblymember for the last six years. This but is, totally unbiased. I'm unbiased. In fact, I'm leaving this week. I know. I know. Um, but today we are here to talk about bikes and to talk about... Can I say I'm sad you're leaving? Can we talk about that? You've been with me since 2016. Mm-hmm. You've done unbelievable work 
in all of these issues in housing and homelessness and transportation. And we're going to miss you from our office. I'm, I don't want to cry in this podcast. <laughs> so we need to focus on bikes. But I appreciate that very much. Um, and honestly, I have benefited more than I can even put into words at the moment. And I, I will continue to, to relay how much I've benefited for, for the rest of my career. Um, thank you for everything. Truly. But now can we talk about your Omnibike bill? Minimum, okay, Laura, Omnibike bill, parking minimums eliminated. If it's a wonderful life movie, we're made for California cyclists in 2023, and you played the lead, and an angel showed how life would be if you'd never lived. How would it be different? <laughs> so I guess, yeah. Well, I think that you couldn't do that for another 20 or 30 years because I feel like I'm just getting started with the work that I'm doing. Even though I've been lucky enough to be able to do some really impactful work like eliminating parking minimums near transit and doing um, speed limit setting reform so that cities can lower speed limits in dangerous areas for the, for the first time um, to doing uh, work on funding for active transportation and, and transit. There's so much more work to do. California still spends the lion's share of its transportation dollars on new highways and highways uh, in general and widening highways. And oftentimes mass transit is an afterthought. And I've been working on flipping that switch and we need to do that. We need to flip the switch in California to where we put money into into transportation options that are equitable, that increase public health, that are sustainable, and that allow us to live in a way that's more sustainable. And that means less investment into roads for single occupancy vehicles and more into active transportation, into safe bicycle infrastructure and transit. And so hopefully if someone made that movie and there was that angel, it would happen in 20 or 30 years from now. And I could point back and say, this I was part of the movement that made California transportation move into the next century with a completely different perspective. One that centers livable communities, walkable and bikeable neighborhoods, um, safety, and hopefully uh, California where my daughter, who's nine now, will be able to safely walk and bike to school. Regarding the Omnibike bill, how it's addressed the requirements that vehicles have to make now when they're passing bikes, that is something that folks are, at least bike advocates like myself, are very excited about and happy with. Um, can you talk about it a little bit? Sure, what the, the bike omnibus bill uh, makes a whole bunch of changes in California law. Um, and one of them, one of the many changes is that cars will now be required to move over a lane when it's safe to do so. So if they're in a, and obviously not to go into the opposing lane of traffic, we're not talking about doing that, but if you're on a two or three lane road and you're passing a cyclist, instead of just squeezing by them, if you've got an open lane next to the, next to you, under the law, you're required now to move over into that lane to pass a cyclist. And so this will be part of what the DMV includes when they're training drivers? Absolutely, this will be in the training manual. This will, hopefully there'll be a question on the driver's test somewhere that says, if you're passing a cyclist, how much room are you supposed to give them by law? And the correct answer will no longer be three feet or whatever you happen to think is safe, or I'm gonna squeeze by them as close as I can because they're jerks. Mm -hmm. It'll be, you have to move over a lane. Mm -hmm. What about the stop sign? Is there anything in that bill regarding um, Cyclists There's not nothing in that bill about stop signs. There is something in the bill which passed and is now law that cyclists can use what's called the lead pedestrian interval. And what that means is that right now, if you're at a red light and you're sitting with the traffic, what often happens is there's a few second delay. And then before your light turns green, the walk sign flips for the pedestrians to give them time to move out into the intersection before cars start moving forward and potentially turning right. This will allow cyclists to use that same lead pedestrian interval. So if you're at a red light and you see the walk sign turn green, you are now allowed to move forward through the intersection. Okay, good to know that I'm allowed because I've been doing that for a while. And the reason is because it takes cyclists a while to get up to speed. Mm -hmm. And you actually wanna be going at speed when the cars start to go at speed. Otherwise, they're coming up behind you faster than you're physically able to move. Mm -hmm. Another story that we are hoping to get your reaction to is um, 
the ATP funding slashing in this year's budget. Um, yeah, I'm not happy about that, and I'm going to advocate to make that funding um, more complete and to go back to the previous level that was agreed on in last year's budget. Um, however, I would say there's also work to be done to reform what municipalities are spending that money on. Um, we have a bill that we're introducing that will say that you should not use that for sharrows, for instance. That that money should really go into infrastructure that really makes it more safe to cycle, namely protected bike lanes and other sorts of inter- infrastructure like that. So we're looking at you know the money. Yes, it's important to retain the full amount of money, but it's also important to make sure that municipalities are really dedicating that money to making it safer to cycle and walk and not just for signage or markings in the lanes that may or may not help. Do you think that ATP funding was slashed excessively compared to some of the other things that are receiving cutbacks? I think that is the that is the perception from cyclists at the moment in active transit. I do think it was slashed excessively I couldn't tell you that it was slashed excessively compared to a lot of other important things in the budget. It's true that a lot of the transit funding, though it was cut back, it is being backfilled from other places where the active transportation money is not. So I agree that it's not a good place to to cut money. For one thing, the ATP programs are oversubscribed, meaning we have more cities applying for the funding than we have funding already in the budget. So when you cut that, you're going to have even more projects, many of which are shovel ready, many of which are very important. You're going to have a lot less of those have the ability to move forward. The $300 million that the governor is using to, to fill in some of the, that what was cut, isn't that coming from a, a, a different part of the budget? There's money that's being moved over from other parts of the budget. The other thing to remember with the money that's going into transit is that it's going into transit infrastructure. It's not going into operations from the general fund, which means that it's a lot of it's going into projects. Some of them are projects that are ongoing. Some of them are projects, though, that actually couldn't spend that money for, you know, probably within the next couple of years. So some of it's being stalled, and it may actually not affect those projects as much as people think, because they're not ready to move forward now anyway. And yeah, some of it is being backfilled. So I also want to make it clear that this is the governor's proposal, and now the job of the legislature is to review the budget and to make our counterproposal. So I plan as chair of transportation to fight for every dollar of transportation funding, particularly funding, well, let me put a caveat. I'm going to fight for all the funding that's going into active transportation and mass transit. I also want to make sure that our transit agencies have more support with operations because since COVID, their ridership numbers have been falling. And the problem with that is that when that when that happens, they have no choice but to start cutting service. Mm-hmm. And when you cut service in transit and it's running less, maybe it's less clean, or the perception is that it's less safe and certainly it's less convenient, you're cutting routes, maybe you're running the buses less, maybe now it's coming five minutes slower or there's less buses out there, people leave the system even more. And then the more you leave the system, the more you cut service and the more people leave and it becomes a perpetuating crisis That's where it's a downward spiral. I wanna make sure that our transit operators have money right now to help with their operations. And there's nothing in the budget that I know of right now to help them. So my biggest mandate is to try to help our transit agencies with their operations. It's, it's very important. It's important to, to cyclists as well, because many of you who are cycling are probably using buses, maybe to get home, maybe for part of your trip, maybe you're taking the train, maybe you're cycling to Long Beach and want to take the light rail home. We need to make sure that those systems are robust. And in fact, we need to be expanding our mass transit systems. We need more bus rapid transit around the Southland. This is not the time to stop those investments, and it's certainly not the time to kneecap our transit agencies so that they can't even run enough buses to make those systems work. Mm. Applause. Um, I, I think the, um, you know, that, that brings up the next question, which is that last year the governor vetoed some bills that advocates were very excited about. Um, he vetoed them before signing some of your your biggest pieces of legislation since you've been in the legislature, AB 2097. How did you do it? And 
can you provide a roadmap for other legislators to have similar success? So I will say that 2097 had the support of a whole network of, of advocates who have been working on this issue for a long time, from Donald Shoup, who certainly raised the awareness in academic circles, to um, uh, California YIMBY and Abundant Housing LA, and a lot of the environmental groups who came on board, Enviro Voters. Um, there were lots and lots of groups. I, I mean, certainly the, the cycling community, um, California Bikes, there were a lot of advocates. And I want to give a shout out to my sister, Nancy Skinner, who's a senator from um, San Francisco who carried this bill several years ago. And I think the time just wasn't right. Uh, she certainly had the right idea, but you can't do it in a vacuum. And so we've built on the work that she laid down and we expanded the network and the advocates were out there in force. They were educating the public. They were getting journalists interested across the country about parking reform. We have a housing crisis, so people are looking for ways to bring the cost of building housing down. We have an environmental and a climate crisis. People are trying to figure out how to make our communities more sustainable. They're trying to figure out how to make transit work. And surprisingly enough to some people, the nexus for so many of these issues was was parking. And Donald Shoup is really the one, I think, who started to make people aware of that nexus. And I was successful in talking to my colleagues. It helped that we had some of the chambers of commerce, some of the more traditionally conservative groups on our side. I would go to my Republican colleagues and I would say, why should the nanny state tell a private property owner how much parking they need for their clients? And that resonated with them. I would go to environmentalists and talk about the environmental toll of, of open air parking lots, of, of, of using giant swaths of land, hundreds of miles in California, hundreds of miles mm-hmm. just to park cars, about how transit doesn't work when you invite people to, to easily drive and park in an area. We talked about how much every parking space costs to the builder, a builder of housing. And our spokespeople were people who are building affordable housing, 100% affordable housing, who said, this is stopping the building of affordable housing. Luxury housing is still going to build with parking. And we've seen that in cities where they've already done this, cities like San Diego, where the luxury housing developers come in and they still add all the parking because that's what their customers want. But in San Diego, four times the amount of affordable housing built after they decoupled their parking requirements from their entitlements. Mm-hmm. So we know this is powerful. We know it'll, and, and that we had the very builders who build affordable housing, 100% affordable housing say they have walked away from projects because of parking requirements that their clients don't need mm-hmm. because their clients don't own as many cars as other buildings. I've heard that LA city planning is looking at that legislation and the maps as a way to stimulate economic recovery from the pandemic because businesses that don't need those parking spaces can now utilize spaces in brick and mortar spaces that that they don't need. And I wonder, do you think that it improves or it incentivizes um, commuters to use bikes? I have to to bring this back to bikes. This is bike talk. Um, It does. I mean, very simply, if it's easier to bike into an area, it gives people more reason, but also if you have less cars in that area. Mm -hmm. So if you're going into an area where you know it's not gonna be wall-to-wall cars, wall-to-wall parking, you'll feel safer as a cyclist going into those areas. And the whole goal is that around these transit hubs, we want to have areas that are much more about people, about walking around and biking around than about sitting neck to neck in congestion in a crowded downtown area in a car. You know, it was was also inspiring when 2097 was signed. Um, I think also people are looking at places around the world like Paris, um, getting rid of cars and, um, and again, going back, you, you have had great success in this space. You know, what is next for you? What are your goals this year? And, and how can you export your success more broadly? So we have introduced two bills this year, AB6 and AB7, that will attempt to allow for transit and also active transportation like bicycle infrastructure to compete much better against those highway widening projects. We tried this work last year. We were not successful. We did get one bill to the governor's desk. It was vetoed. We have ideas of a different approach this year that will help us get to the same thing. We have a lot of federal money coming in for infrastructure, for transportation. We need to make sure it goes to the right projects. We need to make sure that it's projects that align with our California values of sustainability. 
And a lot of that has to do with funding active transportation and not just, you know, a trail and a bike, a bike path in a park, which is great, but I'm talking bike highways, things that actually allow people to bicycle commute through urban areas or from one community to another. That's what our, this transportation money should be going to. And so with these two bills, we're, in, we're trying to do that. And it's a sea change uh, in California. We still act as though our transportation system was stuck in the 1950s and that we were still trying to pave over the whole state and you know run cars everywhere. And we have got to get past that. And we've got to make our transportation planning and our transportation system as aspirational as our goals for clean energy generation, and biodiversity protection and everything else. We have to connect all the dots, be truly sustainable in every way in California. And that means focusing on active transportation and transit and centering that. And we're not doing that by lip service. You have to do it through funding. And that's what I'm working on. In terms of going into the future, I think at the federal level, we need people who are going to champion federal dedicated funding streams for active transportation. This needs to be a a priority at the federal government as well. We need to have champions for active transportation at the federal level in federal government. It's, It's critically important that we have people who don't just pay lip service, but who have actually done the work to, who know how funding works at the state level and the kind of support we can get at the federal level and who center that in their work. Last question. What or where in life is your bike joy? My favorite thing at this moment is biking with my daughter. I bought her a new Trek mountain bike a couple weeks back to replace her little kid Huffy. And she liked her Huffy. She didn't really want a new bike. But when she got on that big girl bike with those, all those gears, which she figured out in like five minutes, and I've been like trailing her, you know, all over the place on her bike and just seeing the joy she gets out of it and the sense of accomplishment she gets, the fact that she can get up our hill and I can't, that is my bike zen right now. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Assemblymember Friedman. Thank you. That was California Assemblymember Laura Friedman talking with former Representative Bike Talk co-host Seamus Garrity. Now Galen Mook, head of the Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition, talks with guests from California and Washington, D.C. about legislation to incentivize e-bikes. Uh, welcome to Bike Talk. We are back to talk about e-bike incentives across the entire continent right now. From CalBike, we have Laura McKamey. She's the uh, communications person, but also a, a spearheader of the e-bike work out there. Laura, how are you today? I'm good. How are you, Galen? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining us. We actually are broadcasting both in Massachusetts and out of LA. So this is very topical and pertinent. Can you just take a minute to talk a little bit about what CalBike is um, and the program that you have going with the e-bikes? CalBike is also known as the California Bicycle Coalition. We are the statewide coalition. Um, We work with a lot of local coalitions, and we also work on getting legislation passed, working with statewide agencies to uh, get funding for bike infrastructure and to get uh, more bike-friendly and pedestrian-friendly programs in the state of California. The e-bike incentives, the statewide e-bike incentives, is something that we advocated for in 2021. We were able to get funding for a pilot um, for the program. It's incredibly popular. We have had more interest in this than probably anything we've done, at least in the last five or six years. There's so many people out there who would like to get an e-bike. They're really expensive and being able to get help with the purchase price um, is very appealing. We're doing this here in Massachusetts, just Mm -hmm. the same. Um, We have a pilot program that's running through our clean energy center geared towards electric vehicles that we were able to add in electric bicycles. Mm -hmm. Um, That's from the administration. But similarly, we're pursuing in legislation, kind of similar to your work, of making sure that e-bike incentives and rebate programs and grant programs are actually kind of put into law. California already has an incentive program that includes e-bikes that's related to electric vehicle incentives. All of the programs in California are run by either local or statewide air resource boards. The local air quality management districts added an e-bike benefit to their clean cars program. So in that program, if you have an eligible car that you can take off the the road and get it scrapped. They will give you money either to buy an electric vehicle, you can get bus passes, but you can also get up to $7,500 toward buying e-bikes. You can buy more than one because it's a generous amount of money. You have to have the car to turn in and it's also, uh, you have to be income eligible. The statewide incentive, this is still being formulated. It's $1,000 for 
a regular bike, an extra $750 if you're getting an adaptive bike or a cargo bike. And also, I think another $250 if you live in a disadvantaged community as the income cap is 300% of the federal poverty level. I'm wondering, do you have like a, a set number of units? Are you expecting X amount of bikes to be put out um, onto the streets based on this? The pilot program has $10 million in funding and CARB, um, the California Air Resources Board, found an additional $3 million. That'll offset a lot of the administrative costs and leave more of that $10 million for incentives. Right. So we're estimating between seven and 10,000 more e-bikes on the street because of this program. And I am sure it will be oversubscribed because the interest is incredibly high. This program and also the, the Clean Cars program, their, their point of sale vouchers and at CalBike, we thought that was really important, especially for low-income people. Asking them to put out $1,000 and then get the money back is just not realistic. Mm-hmm. You know, This way, you get the money at the time that you're buying the bike. It goes straight to the bike retailer, um, and you don't have to put the money out up front. We felt that was a more equitable structure. EV programs have been criticized for a lot of the benefits going to high-income people who would have bought EVs anyway, and they're really trying to put equity front and center in the e-bike program, which is- I love that. Yeah, that's got to be absolutely key um, because we all know that those are the lenses with which we need to view all of this work, knowing who has been disproportionately affected by our inequitable transportation system in the first place. Exactly. Um, Have you been hearing stories about these life-changing devices? What's the, uh, the inspiration here? I just want to say we love classic bikes. Um, There's nothing (laughs) wrong with a non-electrified bike. Um, (laughs) But e-bikes, I think if we want a broader range of the population to adopt bicycling for everyday transportation, the e-bike is a really good option to have out there. We did something a couple of years ago where we solicited e-bike stories from our members. And one of the things that surprised me was how many stories I heard about people who were either elderly who are disabled, um, had some kind of health problem, or just thought, I'm not in good enough shape to ride a bike, to commute by bike. And an e-bike got them over the hump. An e-bike allowed someone to keep active, even though their health wasn't quite as good as it was before, or to keep active after they'd had knee surgery, or um, to know that if they, you know, while they're getting in shape, if they rode out and they had a class two e-bike, they could, they didn't have to pedal on the way home. If they were too tired, they could still get home. E-bikes, I think it's going to break down a lot of barriers that have kept people from biking. One of the big barriers has nothing to do with e-bikes and it has to do with our infrastructure. But on an e-bike, you do have a little more ability to power yourself out of a dangerous situation if you have to. You can, you can boost that power and just jet out of if a car is running a red light or something, hopefully. Or you can maybe keep up with traffic a little quicker. Exactly. Um, You're closer to the same speed as traffic, which is a little bit safer. So I think that's the reasoning behind e-bikes, that um, they're a great way to p- replace car trips. And I think giving a small voucher to people of any income or at least of a higher income range to help them buy an e-bike would be excellent. I'm hoping that we get that. Part of the goal is to take cars off the road. And I think rewarding people for doing the right thing is going to be helpful toward that goal. Wonderful. And, you know, we share your goals here in Massachusetts. California is a huge state. Obviously, it's one of the biggest population-wise and GDP-wise. So I'm curious to see on a scale of how we can um, kind of get this moving. And, you know, we're also paying attention to Colorado. They have a $12 million budget item that got included by their governor last year for something very similar. And here in Massachusetts, um, MassBike has been helping draft some legislation that would allow for a new program that then can be funded by the administration similar to exactly what you're doing right there. So this is really cool mm-hmm. to see this be like a really coast to coast kind of yeah. alignment of the advocates. We have a um, follow-up interview with a, a council member from DC, Brooke Pinto, who's doing something very similar on a citywide level there too. But I do want to say that I'm so impressed with all the work that um, CalBike is doing. And I'm really lovely to meet you, Laura. Nice to meet you. Thanks so much. And here we'll listen to the interview with uh, council member Brooke Pinto from Ward 2 of Washington, D.C., um, to talk more about e-bike incentives. How are you, Councilman? I am doing great, Galen. Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, our pleasure. I know your timing is tight, so I want to jump right in. Can you uh, pitch us on your e-bike rebates? Absolutely. So we have fantastic bike infrastructure in Washington, D.C. of over 100 miles of bike lanes. And 
the mayor and the city have announced a plan to build 100 more miles of bike lane infrastructure. But we need to make sure that this infrastructure is accessible to a broader group of people um, and that these lanes are protected and connected, which is ongoing work. And so every year I host a community bike ride throughout my ward. We call our districts wards in DC. There are eight wards and I represent ward two, um, which includes all of downtown DC, Shaw, Logan Circle, DuPont Circle, Georgetown, Foggy Bottom, West End, and Calorama. Um, And so I I host this bike ride every year where we stop at different stops throughout the ward and I hear directly from neighbors about what they would like to see primarily for pedestrian and bike safety. Um, And so many ideas from these bike rides I have championed, whether that's a new bike lane that's needed on a specific route or uh, flexi posts that are needed in a particularly dangerous area or circle. And this fall, one of the resounding ideas that kept being raised by neighbors who were joining me on this bike ride was, we need to do more to get more of our residents on electric bikes. This is a great option for people. Electric bikes are super expensive, which can Mm -hmm. be really prohibitive for so many people. And they're really more user-friendly. You can use them for a much wider range of uh, physical ability. All ages can use them. And they're great cargo bikes that allow so much more access to space and groceries and help getting people from where they want to go. And so this idea really originated directly from the community, from this ride. And so I introduced last week uh, the e-bike act, and it sets aside 2,500 instant point of sale rebates for local DC bike shops so we can support our small businesses. And so how it works is we have half of them set aside for residents who are making less than 80% of the area median income. For those residents, you get either a $1,200 rebate off of your bike or 70% off of your bike, whichever is the lower number. And for the other half, for everybody else in DC, you get $400 off your bike or 30% off of the total price. Um, and so we're really excited about this. There's been a lot of enthusiasm and yeah. we hope to get it passed. That's awesome. I'm excited about it. So I'm curious where you got this idea from. Have you seen this in play? Um, I'm familiar with some of the e-bike rebates, especially in Massachusetts where we have it going too, but what was your guide star to get this out there? So there have been other places in the country that have pushed forward on similar ideas, particularly in Rhode Island and in Denver. Mm-hmm. I think Denver has been a real leader um, as someone we look as a jurisdiction we looked at for how they both structured the point of sale rebate and how effective it was in getting people to purchase e-bikes and then reduce their car trips by using this as an alternative mode of transportation. That gave us a lot of hope. This rebate would be effective in DC and both making e-bikes more achievable for people to buy and more affordable, but also in reducing their car trips and helping uh, be a more environmentally friendly way to get around our city. Yeah. Are you thinking of collecting any metrics, any data involving the riders? Absolutely. I think that's an important component of this, especially for riders who are making alternative choices that perhaps used to be driving um, Mm -hmm. to, to work or wherever they're going to get around the city. We also wanted to make sure that this was administratively simple, that this didn't require, you know, applying for an incentive or a tax benefit, just it's, this is a rebate at the point of sale that you could handle directly with our local bike shops. That's cool. So you're basically building some backend to work with the bike shops, I imagine, who will then have to get reimbursed for this. Is that it? Exactly. Cool. That's great too, because then it's also building the rapport with the local businesses and kind of tying in the city government to support the local uh, industry. That's a really cool concept. Thank you so much. Yeah, our small businesses in DC are so central to our culture here and to creating such a thriving environment. And they've really been suffering throughout the pandemic, especially with our bike shops who've had so many supply chain issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And so really want to make sure that we're including supports for our small business and our local bike community in this bill. What are you going to do if this, you know, you get you get a, a gold rush run and everybody comes out and, and they disappear in a matter of hours like we've been seeing in Denver and elsewhere? Well, then I think it's time to revisit. Then we make sure that we have the infrastructure we need in the city to handle the increased use. We make sure that people can do so safely. And if we need to come back to the table to have more incentives, then 
that's great. Um, it also hopefully will help spread the word to other residents who can afford an electric bike of how great of an option this is. And hopefully uh, the private marketplace will take care of some of that as well. Awesome. I'm so excited to watch how it goes. Um, I got to ask, do you ride an e-bike on yourself? So I do not regularly ride an e-bike. Um, I ride a regular bike um, or a non-electric bike, I should call it. No, nothing regular. An analog or maybe, right? The traditional. <laughs> right. Um, but I have ridden an e-bike before and um, particularly up big hills. It is certainly very useful. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll continue, continue to explore other ways to get around our city that reduce my uh, footprint. Cool. Yeah. And I'm down in DC quite a bit. Um, we'll be down to the National Bike Summit at the end of March. So uh, maybe we'll find an opportunity to ride together. But um, there's wonderful bike paths and you all have been doing some impressive work from a municipal level to really push forward. We we look to DC as a model for some of the stuff we're doing in Boston and, and throughout the, the rest of uh, Massachusetts. Um, I have one last question for you before you go. It's a question we ask all of our interviewees. What is your bike joy? What inspires you that you can, you'd like to share with our audience? Okay, so I feel like this is a little bit of a cheat because this came from somebody else. But on my first community bike ride that I had, um, I was riding next to somebody who's an avid biker and he's done a lot of advocacy work to build safer bike lanes around the city. And he turned to me and so genuinely just said, don't you just love biking? It feels like you're flying. And I think of him all the time um, when I'm biking of just kind of the pure joy that you can feel and being in nature and uh, getting fresh air and getting to where I need to go in a, in a way that is less environmentally problematic and impactful. Um, and in a way that I can see my surroundings much more clearly, which helps me connect to the community. So I think of him and his bike joy uh, all the time. And that, that kind of gives me my own bike joy. I love it. You are inspired by inspiration. That's <laughs> right. Good. Well, um, I always like to say that all biking is local and I'm proud of uh, you taking on this, this charge here. Councilmember Brooke Pinto from Ward 2 of Washington, D.C., who's putting forth an e-bike rebate uh, incentive program out in the city. We look forward to tracking you down in a couple of months and seeing how the e-bike incentive is going. Sounds good. And hopefully see you in D.C. in March. That was the head of the Massachusetts Bike Coalition, Galen Mook, with Laura McCamey of CalBike and D.C. Councilmember Brooke Pinto. Now, a conversation with Eric Saul, NIMBY keeper. This is Eric Saul, architect in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Hi, Eric. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. Thank you. I saw you on social media. I learned that you are a beekeeper. Yes. <laughs> uh, I am the beekeeper of NIMBY, who is a fun, lovable, pro-1950s urban design mascot. It's like a sports mascot. Yeah, politics is a sport. So I would say he's definitely a sports mascot. It's human-sized. There's a human in, in it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that person just, will remain anonymous, by the way. I reached out to NIMBY, who has their own Twitter account, and they said that they don't speak. Correct. When uh, when when NIMBY was created, that was a that was a hard thing to figure out what to do. I really like the man on the street aspect of interviewing people and sort of like the Daily Show way of going into like you know like Trump rallies and Jordan Klepper would go in there and ask funny questions. Um, but then we decided that maybe NIMBY shouldn't speak because it's funnier in a way. Like it allows people just to react to him. And I don't know, it, it just, it's a different way of a uh, social experiment. It's, it's interesting seeing their reactions. This is a type of humor that I've seen before. Like Stephen Colbert will pretend to be conservative, for example, right? Correct. Yeah. So NIMBY goes out and opposes uh, anything that a regular NIMBY. Okay, so NIMBY stands for not... not in my backyard. And that's the classic, you know, we want affordable housing, but just not here next to me. We want these good programs, but just not in my neighborhood. So uh, the term NIMBY uh, has been around for quite a while. And uh, it's very big where I live in. And there's definitely a lot of change happening, especially when you live just outside of a metropolitan area where it's very expensive, housing is a big issue, 
housing affordability is a big issue, transit, bike lanes, all of this stuff is happening and it's spreading now into those inner suburbs. And the suburban lifestyle, whatever you want to call it, is you know under attack. So, um, or so they say. So we created NIMBY as like an advocate for those people in a, in a very facetious way. And he is really, really just a mirror of them. He's not, he's not saying anything that they wouldn't say. He's just dressed in a bee outfit doing it. <laughs> and so uh, the reactions of, of people get very angry about it. They feel like we're insulting them. And, and obviously we are making fun of them, but he's not doing anything that they're not doing already. Um, he's opposing bike lanes. He's opposing new housing. He's opposing this change of his suburb. And uh, that's what he does. He just buzzes around and, you know, fights things. <laughs> so where do you all go? You and NIMBY. So NIMBY has only been around for about a year. Um, mainly Tacoma Park is where we started. We introduced him at our 4th of July parade, which was really funny. Um, some reporters from NPR, uh, some DC people were, you know, there and they retweeted him and they're like, oh my gosh, they have a NIMBY in Tacoma Park. This is great. And it kind of took off. Um, we've stayed in Montgomery County, which is sort of like our area here, but we've gone into DC a couple of times, uh, both on some bike lane issues. Um, and NIMBY just stands in the bike lane and does his thing and tries to tell people that he does not support these new bike lanes coming in. Um, we've gotten requests for him to come to North, Northern Virginia. Uh, they're kind of doing the same thing we're doing just on the other side of DC on the Virginia side. Um, a lot of housing is being opposed over there. Uh, we've got requests from California and from Connecticut and sort of all over. So uh, I don't know how that's gonna happen. We don't make any money at all. We lose money with NIMBY, I'm sure. Maybe NIMBY needs to charge a fee to, uh, <laughs> to fly around. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess NIMBY would, get on a plane or how would that work i mean he could fly but he's a bee you know bees can't travel that far so yeah there'd definitely be a uh some kind of flight i'm sure or a train maybe if it's not that far i refer to this as a mascot do you try to keep up the whole like i'm a beekeeper this is an actual bee y yes <laughs> well especially on social media so people who do not like nimby will say like oh you need to grow up quit being a grown man dressed in, in a mascot whatever and i'll say what are you talking about i'm a real bee you know so his his persona online he protects his status uh he's just a real bee uh in his mind he is so <laughs> so it is a he uh i i think so yeah i mean he's kind of he's sort of non he shouldn't be i i i think i say he because the person that wears the costume is a he so i think i'm just kind of linking it to that but really nimby is is nothing you know he's gender neutral but uh bees aren't they all male the ones that you see i don't know how that works i'm sorry yeah I, I need to learn more about yeah um let's just say he's a he for simplicity because I'll, I'll say the word he all the time and i i don't want to have to like go back and like wait a minute uh <laughs> So NIMBY can't talk, but can type mm -hmm. in response to social media. Yeah, he's very snarky. You know, if you give NIMBY crap, he'll give crap right back to you. Um, that's what he does, you know, but he's always got a smile on his face when he does it. So he's happy to just fight, you know, um, but he does it in a very like loving way. NIMBY, uh, he doesn't like YIMBYs, but you know. Usually the Yimbies leave him alone. It's the Nimbies that attack him. So he's usually confused. Like, why Why are you mad at me? I'm, I'm your friend. Why, you know, how could you throw me under the bus like this? Like, I want, I'm on your side. So those are usually his uh, responses. I want to talk about the responses. But first, I also want to say he dances, right? That's how bees communicate. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, <laughs> Nimby is surprisingly a very good dancer, <laughs> as we've learned from uh taking him out to, uh, you know, various areas. We took him to Silver Spring during an election and they had this whole plaza where all the, you know, all the candidates kind of hang out in this plaza where you go to vote and they have their little booth set up and they happened to be playing salsa music one day. And uh, Nimby shocked everybody with his amazing salsa moves and uh, it attracted a lot of people. So his little, you know, mating dance uh, worked really well. <laughs> Wow, there are circles where this must just 
go over so well. What are the so what are the reactions? So very mixed. I mean, if you understand, I would say most people do understand what NIMBY is in this area, and they you know kind of follow uh, my satirical blog, which created NIMBY, the Tacoma Torch, and um, so they see NIMBY around and they're used to them, and they, they we get a lot of like support uh, more than I think. I always think we go in there, and and I always kind of have to psych myself up, like okay, people are going to hate this. It's going to be bad. We're going to get slaughtered. Let's just have an escape plan in case this goes wrong. And I, I actually created the beekeeper outfit. I actually do wear a beekeeper outfit um, when I go with them. A, because it's hard to see out of the mascot outfit. But but B, because, B, pun intended, uh, because protection. Like, I don't know if someone's going to, like, ruin the costume or steal his, you know, mask or something. So it's kind of like a little bodyguard to make sure nobody messes with the, the costume. But overall, the reactions have always been really, really good. Um, we crashed a parade. We have a big Silver Spring parade here on Thanksgiving. And we weren't even signed up to be in it. Uh, we just went there and there was thousands of people. We just ripped down the parade like we were part of it. And we got a ton of cheers. And, you know, some people were booing, you know, here and there. But um, I would say 99% was very positive. So the people that do not like NIMBY when they see us, they generally are afraid to say anything. I don't know if they're afraid to or they just don't, but um, we don't hear a lot of, nobody's gotten in his face, let's just say that. It's always been sort of a thumbs down from a distance or like a boo from a far away. You'd have to sort of know enough to know that it's about you, a NIMBY. Correct. You'd have yeah, to be and pretty... if, you, if you don't like NIMBY, you're kind of admitting you're a NIMBY in a way. It's, it's kind of a checkmate move. Yeah. Nice. Well played. I saw you with America's bike mayor, John Bowders, recently. Yeah. Maybe had a sign. What did the sign say again? So on one side, it said B, B E E against everything. And then on the other side, it said, or no, sorry, it said B against bike lanes. And then on the other side, when you flip it, it said B against Bowders. And so <laughs> we, uh, we knew he was coming. We I've been following him for a while. He's um, you know, our politics align. I when I met him, I didn't realize we went to the same college at the same time and graduated the same year. So um that was kind of special. Uh, but we had planned this thing. We gotta go down to DC, we gotta make this happen. So we um got all the logistics to work out, made our signs, and uh we rode directly on down Pennsylvania Avenue, which lines up the Capitol building. And there's, they put a bike lane right in the middle of the road instead of on the side. It's really cool. So the center median is a two-way bike lane. And Nimi was out there right in the middle of the, of the bike lane when we got there and surprised Mayor Bowders with, uh, with his sign. And, and he, he took it really well. He was cracking up laughing. He, he said it was hilarious. It was like the greatest joke that was ever played on him, whatever. Uh, it was fun. And it was total surprise. Wow. Yeah. I told him that he would have a special guest. And he would kind of look at me like, what's going on? So, um, but the people around me knew. So I hope no one spilled the beans that he was coming. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> How do you decide where to go? Like two things. One, like request if someone says, hey, there's this issue happening. Um, Nimby's been on some Zoom calls even. So there was a fight about closing a street to cars uh, in this area. And so there was like a Zoom call with, you know, county council people and whatever. So Nimby Zoom bombed it. Or, you know, we'll just hear about something. Usually I'm friends with some planners and people in the sort of industry and they know what's going on or, or, or they're involved in those sort of debates between what's coming, you know, like new bike lanes. And they kind of prepare me like, hey, there's this group that's coming to uh, fight this. Can you come? So we'll, we'll go, come to some of those things. Um, uh, yeah, so we'll look for some, you know, places that maybe can can go to. Um, or we'll just, people will tell us. Um, it's been harder to find protests. A lot of things got passed in this last year that kind of went in favor of EMB stuff. So we're waiting for the next big thing where maybe can go join the protest. Um, so if anybody has any cool ideas on where maybe should show up next, uh, we'll bring them. All right. Thanks, Eric. Where should we direct our request for appearances for NIMBY? Is NIMBY actually a YIMBY? NIMBY is... A nah, sarcastic, he's, he's, a sarcastic. A, he's a caricature of a NIMBY, but the idea of creating him 
is yeah, it's very unique. Yeah, it's a um, he's sort of like our facetious like way of making fun. He's our satirical nimby. That's the best I could put it. <laughs> and Yimby is yes in my backyard. Yeah, Yimby is yes in my backyard, basically in response to no. Um, so the idea is, you know, and my personal philosophy is uh, I'm an architect. I, you know, I'm involved in housing. I think that we're, we have a housing shortage. I think we need to redesign cities to be walkable, more livable, more uh integrated and also for like less cars and, and those kind of things. So all these sort of Yimby arguments all are the same kind of like, it's the same debate with the same people. Um, we find that the NIMBYs are, if they're against housing, they're against bike lanes. If they're against bike lanes, they're like for wider widening freeways and, and things like that. And, and it's very interesting and, and it goes both parties too. It's not a red versus blue thing. It's very interesting. So anyway, NIMBY kind of makes fun of Democrats and Republicans alike. You know, there's no political party that's that's uh, that loves NIMBY or hates NIMBY. They're, they're kind of equal in a way. All right. And I think I interrupted you. You're about to say how we can request uh, an appearance by NIMBY. Yeah. So NIMBY can only be reached on Twitter at the moment at the NIMBY, N-I-M-B-E-E. NIMBY looks forward to your messages. Uh, please talk trash to NIMBY. He loves that. So if you want to just say something mean to him, he lives for it. So please. But he'll give it back to you. So you better be, you're going to get stung back. Wow. Thanks, Eric. This is a, a great idea. And I'm glad it's getting traction. Thanks for being on Bike Talk. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was Eric Saul, keeper of the NIMBY. And that was Bike Talk. Thanks to co-hosts Lindsay, Taylor, Seamus, and Galen, and Kevin Burton for editing. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Bye.